Welcome to the podcast of Revival Life Church, a spirit-filled multicultural church in Boca Raton, Florida. If you would like more information about Revival Life Church or Pastor Carl Thomas, you can find us on the web at revivallife.church. Yeah, I, I, I had a good weekend. I hope you had a good weekend. We got half the world traveling today uh, and uh, from all kinds of countries and all kinds of places. And I uh, hope we just pray safe travels. I also hope that you're in prayer for what's going on in Europe right now with Ukraine and Russia. Uh, we pray that, um, really, we just pray for peace. Amen? And uh, we pray that the, uh, the church in Russia will have an ear uh, to the leadership, that, that this leadership in Russia will turn to Christ and will lay down their violence and understand that the God of the resurrection is not in any of this and that uh, that Holy Spirit will have His way and bring peace. We pray for protection over all involved, and we pray for peace. Amen? Amen. God does not like what's happening. He is not in it. He is not in it at all. I was thinking this week, have you ever noticed, you ever thought back in time? I like to think back over my life. I've had uh, my my wife uh, in our early marriage and my daughter later on began to say the same things over and over again, and that I've lived, I don't know if you feel this way, I feel like I've lived seven lives at this point, right? Like I've had like, like, uh, like there was my, my BC life, my, my before Christ life was, was, was pretty, pretty crazy. Like it was pretty crazy and it had its own nine lives, right? And uh, since I've gotten, uh, become a disciple of Christ, uh, things got better, but no, no more predictable, right? Like just you, you come into Christ, if you're looking for a stable, predictable life, Jesus is not the way to go, right? If you, if the, the closer, as you read the scriptures, the closer people are to Jesus, the less they have any idea what's going on. Have you noticed this trend? The closer these people are to Jesus, the less they understand what's going on. The only difference is the people closest to Jesus know that they don't know what's going on, right? The people far from Jesus, they think they're able to judge the situation they think they know how things are supposed to go. They, they think they understand the plan of God. They think they understand what's supposed to be happening. Uh, but, the, but, the, but the crowd was at least smart enough to follow him. Uh, the disciples were smart enough to just give up trying to figure out what he's talking about, right? And those closest to him just shut up at some point and just said, like, well, I'm just going to listen, right? Have you ever, you ever got to a place in your life where you're like, I, I, I understand at this point I just need to listen. I don't know. Have you found yourself, have you gotten to the place in business or in life or, or you're in a room with some people and you're like, oh, I know my role here. My role is to listen. Like, I have nothing to contribute to this conversation. God has me here to learn. Have, have, you, have you ever been there? What, what's funny is, and if I'm going to be a little crass, so give me a little grace here, uh, the smarter the person is, the more they recognize they're supposed to shut up. It is the people without the recognition of their own limited cognition who talk the most. And you want to be like, I I understand you enjoy what you're saying. But you would benefit a whole lot more in this conversation if you were just to shut up, right? Like that would probably be the greatest contribution to this discourse would be for you to withdraw yourself from it, right? Like that would be, that would enrich everyone around you. Uh, And because there's a season of learning and there's a season of teaching and so many believers, we miss 
understand the season that we are in. Let me say that again. So many believers, so many followers of Christ misunderstand the season that we are in. And it's only much, much, much later do we discern what God is doing in the season. And it's not my goal here to throw you off kilter or to make you feel unstable or, 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 um, or for you to lose hope. If anything, it is my goal in the talk today to let you know you have no clue what God is doing and that's exactly where God wants you. You have no clue what He's doing right now and that's where He wants you. And so uh, I'm going to kind of map out how this is biblical. And I'm going to map out how this is historical. And then I'm going to encourage you that you're in the will of God. All right? That's where we're going right now. Okay? Okay? Yeah. We're going to get in the word here, right? We talked, um, we, we talked in Luke chapter 12. If you remember, we started off Luke chapter 12 um, talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Right? Their hypocrisy was that they constantly judged everything as if they had enough information to be judges. They were not able to understand their own limitations. And so they believed that they were able to judge everything. Now, American Christianity has just boiled that down to don't be a Pharisee. But that's not what Jesus said. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy. But that actually takes some thought to figure out what that means. That takes some effort. And so much of American Christianity just wants it to be simple and applicable, and we want it to be, we want it to work, right? We want, we want to be able to apply it. We want to be able to hear it and apply it right now. And uh, the way we know truth in American Christianity is that I can instantly understand it and apply it right now. Whereas the scriptures were written in a language none of you speak to people none of you know in a time that none of us understand from a God the Bible says has never been seen, Right? And we think that we could get the timeless truths of this Messiah who put on flesh in a way we don't understand and we can boil down his teachings into one sentence and instantly apply it to our lives, right? It, 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 there's a little bit of pride that comes that would make us believe that, right? So to know God takes a little bit of effort. When I got married, I thought I knew my wife. 22 years later, I'm still learning her, Right? Uh, I, I know my children. I've raised them. I've seen them both naked. I don't see them naked anymore, right? Like, right? I see less of them now, but they're letting me know that I don't understand them nearly as much as I think I do. As we are traveling, there is a complexity to my children that I did not know that now I can only learn by them explaining it to me. And they couldn't explain it to me until the season that I could receive it, Right? So there's a point in your child's life that they're explaining things to you that you completely dismiss. And you want to keep that same relationship as they get older. And they'll let you know that, no, 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 that, that relationship died a long time ago. That relation, there was a relationship you have with your children that died on their third birthday. There's a, there's a relationship with your children that, that died once they kept the door closed when they went to the bathroom. Right? Like, and you, you praise Jesus for that relationship, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for this mile marker. There's a relationship with your children that changes once they're able to um, uh, understand their own purpose. There's a, there's a relationship with your children that change once you give them away in marriage. Right? There, there is, and so with God, the relationship 
shifts in maturity. And he allows us to think that we know everything right at the beginning, knowing that later on we'll know nothing. And that's where he actually wants us. This is where we're going. So at the beginning, he talks about the 11 of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, y'all know how to make money. You know the, you know the times, the seasons, you know how to take care of your crops. But you do not understand the seasons of God. And, and of course, this is, this is God coming after the worship of mammon, right? Which is all through the scriptures. We don't have time to talk about that right now. But the giving of our lives to protecting mammon and the duality we're willing to live in as Christians that we think it's perfectly reasonable. Ah, I don't have time to go down this road. But in American Christianity and in the West, we see no contradiction in thinking that we have a Christian life and a civil life. That Jesus would never, never have me lie, sin, cheat, or steal but it's okay if you work for the government to lie, cheat, and steal. Because now there's a different system that's applicable. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's this duality that we live with. Oh, it's okay. It, you know, it's absolutely wrong. Like, you wouldn't want a pastor who lies and steals and, and cheats. But we're like, oh, but if you're a politician, that's okay. No. No, there's, there's one God. His name is Jesus Christ. And either you're serving him or you're not. And so it's not okay to say, I'm an honest person, yet I cheat on my taxes. No, you're a liar, right? You can't say that I'm a faithful person and you have a relationship with someone other than your wife. No, 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 you are a cheater. You're like, oh, no, no, but that's my job. It doesn't matter if that's your job. Oh, but somebody pays me to cheat on their taxes. No, you are a liar and you do it for money. Like, that's, this is sin. We live these dual lives all the time and we say, you know, I have to do this for country even though it's against God's law, but God understands that I am under something other than Jesus. It's this duality that we live with as believers that Jesus is really not excited about. And it's the very thing that got him killed. It's the thing that him telling, saying, listen, there is one God and you have to serve God. And they're like, no, no, but, but, but except for when we're serving Caesar, right? And he's like, no, actually, no. There's, there's, you gave your lives to God, you follow God. They're like, absolutely, absolutely. There's one God and when we're in the temple, we only worship that God. But you know, when we're not in the temple, there's all this Caesar stuff, right? And he's like, no, actually, you, you never serve someone over God. And in American Christianity, that's not a problem for some reason. For some reason, we say we're one nation under God, but the nation at times is more important than God, and sometimes God's more important than nation. Sometimes making money is more important than following God. Actually, most times making money is more important than following God. And, uh, and you know, we believe the scriptures, uh, but do we really believe them? I mean, are, do we really, like, is, like, the Sermon on the Mount, did Jesus literally mean that? Or is that just an ideal? You, you, you hear what I'm saying? There's this duality that we say, you know, I mean, I mean, Jesus, like, don't take what I'm about to say too far, but we say, you know, homosexuals, absolutely none. I mean, it's so very clear, never, ever, ever. Sermon on the Mount, well, you know, he doesn't really mean, he doesn't really, I mean, he doesn't really mean to love your neighbor as yourselves and so jesus in the law and I'll unpack this at some other time jesus says, what is what is the law right you want to follow the law what is the law and we all know this right this isn't a trick question there's two things right number one is love god right this isn't a trick question i promise you there's all the law and the prophets are summed up in two things what 
Love God and? Right. And so we look at that as I get to choose how to serve God and I get to choose who's my neighbor. Like, that's clearly not what he's saying. <laughs> like, could, could you imagine being on the mountain with, with, with Jesus and Peter and, 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 and then God shows up. He, Jesus is transfigured. Elijah and Moses, and they're talking and the, and the voice booms and you then God and you say, wow, he has come so I can, I can choose how to worship him. Oh, I get to choose how to, no, that's, that's not what the thundering voice was saying. We get freedom to choose how to worship him. And Jesus tells all these stories about serving our neighbor and we get to think, well, I get to decide who my neighbor is, right? I mean, like, that person voted for a different candidate, so clearly they're not my neighbor. I don't, I don't, I mean, they're not the one, right? Or they may be richer than me. They're not my neighbor because they should be doing something, you know, they should be giving more money. So that's not the person I should be showing charity to. Or that poor person, it's their fault they're poor, so that's clearly not my neighbor. We, we, have, we live this duality. Is this good? Are we good so far? So that's, you know, that's what we talked about in Luke chapter 12. And we get into Luke chapter 13. And Jesus is in the synagogue. And he's teaching on the Sabbath. Now this is a super important point that I'm going to say just briefly. And I want you to hear this. Um, Jesus went to church every week. We should go to church every week. If you're in town and you're able, go to church. This idea that like, ah, you know, maybe I'll gather, maybe I won't. Go to church, right? Doesn't have to be this church. Go get a church and go every week. Get committed. Commit your life. Don't be under condemnation. You know, your kid is sick at home, got a flat tire. You know, I I understand. So let's, let's, let's be reasonable, but hear what I'm saying. But there's this woman in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and she has a bad back, right? Her back is so bad that she's bent over, and it's been that way for 18 years. Say that number with me, 18 years. Can you imagine your back being bent over 18 years, right? And Jesus sees that she's not sick, it's not biological, it's not genetic, it's not from overworking, it is a demon. And here's this woman, Luke 13, verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now here's a woman, 18 years in the synagogue. And he knew that the people were looking at him to see if he would do a miracle on the Sabbath. Because according to their rules, the Sabbath was more important than God's people. This law was somehow more important than God's people. And they're, they're looking at Jesus, looking to set him up. They're looking for ways that they can, they can, they can trap him with their interpretation of the law. And, and, you know, we can see God all around us in our lives and completely miss what he's doing. Let me say this again. We can see God all around us in our lives and completely miss what he was doing. Now, it's easy to think that he was just there to heal a woman. But there's no coincidence that she had been sick for 18 years. There's no coincidence that this woman was in the synagogue before the people who didn't think Jesus should be healing on the Sabbath. 
There's no coincidence that he did this publicly. There's, there's no coincidences in the kingdom. God is just working on levels that you do not see yet. And God will allow you to walk ignorantly in the direction he has guided you. Can you hear what I'm saying? <clears throat> As you know, I'm a student of revival. Believe in revival. I, I love revival. I'm a student of the history of revival. And we've talked about this man, Jonathan Edwards. I'm sure you've, you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, right? Jonathan Edwards, we talked about him. Jonathan Edwards was one of, the, uh, one of the, 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 the key components of what was called the Great Awakening. It happened both in Great Britain and the United States. Him and him in uh, Whitfield, they preached uh, first in England to like outside of, outside of the, 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 the churches. He famously said, you know, like, like back then you had a little parish, like a county, and that was where you preached, that's where you ministered, and they wouldn't let him minister in churches anymore, and he said, the world is my parish, right? Like he wanted to reach people anywhere. Right? And so he would preach to the coal miners and there's stories of the tears running down coal miners' faces as he led them to Christ. And he would preach in graveyards. That was the only place that was big enough to hold his meetings. And he'd stand on a tombstone and preach. And um, he, he, he was a Puritan. And the, and the Puritans were reformers of the Church of England. And they felt like the Puritans as a group felt like they had a covenant with God to turn people away from sin and toward God. And he came to America and he <clears throat> just traveled everywhere and preached. And, and they just wanted people to stop sinning and love God. They wanted people to, to turn their hearts and affections to Jesus. To really be committed to stopping sinning and, and, and following Jesus. And, and just revivals broke out everywhere. Well, part of how they did this was they were mean. They, they, they had mean messages. Jonathan Edwards, <clears throat> most famous sermon is, is entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in this, this sermon, if you've ever read it, he talks about your life hangs over the pit of hell like, like, like on a spider web with two or three strands barely holding you. And your sin at any moment will plunge you into the depths of the fire of hell will you, where the worms never cease and the fire never quenches. This is kind of how he preached and people were terrified and of the sin in their lives, and, and they turned to Jesus in mass, and God absolutely used that. He's one of the fathers of revivalism, and in 1750, he wrote a message to pastors. Follow me here for a second. He wrote a message to pastors, and he talked about what he called, quote, the enjoyment of a well-instructed, faithful gospel ministry to instruct and lead God's people. He wrote this on teaching ministers how to faithfully follow God. How, how, how to, how to, and he wrote this about the, the ecstasy of following God and ministering well. And we know this sermon. We actually have the handwritten notes of it. But watch this. It's written on the back of a receipt. The receipt was for a 12-year-old girl that he bought as a slave named Lucy. He bought this 12-year-old girl... And if you understand the sexual component of the American slave trade, you'll understand how defiling, disgusting, and horrifying that very act is. So he bought this little girl named Lucy, had the receipt in his carriage, and wrote a message on the back of it about how to be a faithful servant of God. Duality. 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 
Did God use Jonathan Edwards? Absolutely. Was Jonathan Edwards absolutely fallen himself? Yes. Duality. Ah, I could serve God and serve mammon. No friend, you cannot. Here's what he says in the message that he's written on the back of this receipt. He says, God has set ministers to be lights to God's people that they may be stars held in Christ's hand. And he'll make use of them at the day to clear divine truths and rebuke error, to reclaim and correct God's people wherein any respect they've been mistaken have been going out of the way of duty. On the back of a slave receipt of a 12-year-old girl. Does it sound crazy to you? I mean, does it sound insane? It's absolutely insane. Will you look at Jonathan Edwards differently after this day? Yeah, yeah, I can't see past that. I have a hard time seeing past that. Can I be honest with you? I have a hard time seeing past that. He says this, this is a great part of the work of ministers. They are supposed to find out the truth and to exhibit it to the people of God. To search and see whether the way they were going is on the right way or not. And to see them to be going the wrong way, it's their job to tell people you're going the wrong way. They are to, set, they are to be shepherds of the flock of Christ. And it's the proper business of shepherds when they see the flock going astray or gone out of the right way to go and proclaim to them the right way. Ministers are not to make present or past opinions of their flocks the rule of their teaching. Saying, yeah, we don't go along with what society says is okay. We go to God's word, we see what the Holy Ghost says, and we follow that. On the back of a receipt of a 12-year-old girl named Lucy who has lived her entire life enslaved and will be bred to produce more slaves. The duality, right? Are you with me here? The duality and... and and, and the temptation is to think that the Pharisees couldn't see Jesus and John Edwards couldn't see Jesus, but I do. This is what we have to live with as believers. I am not here to rock anybody's faith. I'm not here to say, you know, none of us are saved. I'm here to say the error that we see in the scriptures and throughout history, we are not immune to it. Are, are you with me? Okay, I hope that's not too heavy. I hope we're not, I, I, but this is, this is a big deal. This is a big deal, and it should be heavy because if Jonathan Edwards can fall and the Pharisees who lived their entire lives to follow God, if they could fall, if they can miss God, where are we missing God? I don't want to miss God. How about you? I don't want to miss what he has for me. I don't want to miss the enlightenment. I, I, I want to be a reformer. I, I, want to be, I want to be the person who pulls the Lucy out of slavery. I, I, want, I, want, I, want to, I want to buy that person from slavery on the back of it say, today I declare Lucy will never be a slave ever again. Like she's going to be set free. Like this is who I want to be. I, 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 I shudder to think that in 250 years someone's going to have a service like this. They're going to have a hologram of Carl Thomas and say, you know, he preached so great, but can you believe... I'm going to be in heaven being like, man, I repented of that so many times. And... But even this is in the Bible. Paul's like, I had these two people. They were awesome. They were leaders. They were friends. I turned them over to Satan that they would learn not to blaspheme. And it's in the scripture forever. That's uncomfortable, right? But we need to learn from these things. We, that we can't look at them and say, oh, but you know, 
that'll never happen to me. We need to look at him and say, is that happening to me? We make fun of Peter because, you know, at the Last Supper, he's like, you know, one of you is going to betray you. And Peter's like, is it me? Like, that's who we need to be. We, we need to be, you know, someone's betraying. Is it me? Is it me, God? Is, am I the one? Not living in some insecure, God's going to, is dangling me over fire to condemn me. But God, search my heart. Search me, Lord, and try me. Is there anything in me that's unpleasing? Is there a way? Is there, is there a way you're reaching out to me that I'm missing it? Because I want to live the full life of God right now. I only have this one life to live, and I want to live it serving God. I want to live it being led by the Spirit. I want to glorify Christ in my life. I don't want to live for selfish ambition. I want to live to proclaim the gospel, the good news, the freedom of Jesus Christ. I want to die to self and let the church be healthy. This is where I want to live. And the Pharisees were so sure that they were right with God that they missed what God was doing healing the woman on the Sabbath. They completely missed it. Completely missed it. The people were mad because Jesus healed this woman on, on, on the Sabbath. And Jesus rebuked them and said, You hypocrites, you'll set free an ox. You'll set free a donkey. But you think this daughter of Abraham shouldn't be set free? What, what are you... What do, you think, what do you think this whole law is about? It's not about you making money. It's like, and I need you to see the duality here again. They had the law of God. And they had to follow the law, unless financially it was better not to. The Sabbath could not be violated unless your money was at risk. And then you go save your ox or you save your donkey. Because that's the way you make money. But people... No, no, no. That's, that's not as important. Are you following me here? Yeah. You're following me? It, it's no different in America today. It's, just, it's no different. Like, because there's nothing new under the sun. We encounter significant moments in our lives with God, but we lack the awareness to see their importance and interpret them rightly. Like, like we, we... This takes effort to follow Jesus. It takes effort to discern rightly what God is doing in a situation. The Pentecostal movement, of course, comes from what Jonathan Edwards started. It started as, as this purity movement where people were trying to seek God. We thought, man, there is this sin that is destroying people's relationship with God and people need to turn their hearts to God in a, in a way from sin. We need to love righteousness and hate lawlessness, but just like the Pharisees, the, the, the avoiding sin became more important than seeking God. Let, let me say that again. Avoiding the devil starts becoming more important than the Jesus who died on the cross. And anytime you're in a movement, and, 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 and I pray this never happens to any of you, but anytime you're in a movement that prays more to the devil than to God, you know that you've missed the mark. Have you ever been in a meeting where they're talking to the devil the whole time, pulling him down and casting him there and sending him here and pulling him up and putting him on no like if you're talking to the devil more than God you've missed the mark if you got someone discipling you seeing more demons and angels you've missed the mark right there's at least twice as many angels as demons and if people are only seeing demons you find what you're looking for are, 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 are we together here we're to look for God and, and for those of you who are worried about demons just just look for God and if you see a demon you have authority over it Look at it long enough to make it go away. And once it goes away, go back to looking at God. Don't be looking for demons. Look for Jesus. Right? So, so Wesley and Whitfield, they, they, they were preaching. 
They started, like I said, what was called the, the Great Awakening, and it really it changed the shape of the United States. It changed the, 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 the shape of America, and the, the, this, this, this Puritan movement began to kind of take off, and all kind of, we have a lot of our laws based in the ethos of these folks, that if we avoid enough sin, then we'll be close to God. And uh, after that, there was a second great awakening. This happened in the, the end of the 1700s, around 1790 it began, and through most of the early 1800s this is where we had uh, Finney, which you've probably studied, uh, Charles Finney, and uh, D.L. Moody, uh, the Salvation Army, the Booths came out of this era. And, uh, and again, they, they preached that we need to become holy, we need to avoid sin, we need, to, we need to repent. And out of this second great awakening came the holiness movement. And in the holiness movement, they were really convinced, if I can just live holy enough, then Jesus will send his spirit and sanctify me. It, it, it went from, uh, you know, Jesus will send his spirit to sanctify me, to if I can get holy enough in my efforts, Jesus will send his spirit and he'll sanctify me. Let me, let me tell you the the entomology of a phrase you may have heard before. Uh, originally, people, uh, during the awakenings, they believed you needed to get saved. You couldn't just be saved because your parents were born Catholic or Orthodox or whatever. Uh, you had to actually get saved. You had to be converted to Christ. That's the Protestant Reformation, right? That's, that's what Luther kind of ushered in. And uh, later on, in, after the holiness movement, they decided, man, you, you, you can be saved and still bound in sin, and so you're not fully connected to God until you've become sanctified. You've got to be set apart for God. You're not really going to heaven because you've not been, you, the Holy Spirit has not sanctified you, made you holy. And they use all kind of typography from the Old Testament and the, the, the items, the lampstand and the, and the things in the, in the inner court and the Holy of Holies. And that, those things were set apart for God. And we want to be set apart. And the only way to be set apart is to live a holy life. So once you've been saved, the work is not done. You have to be sanctified, right? And so some people, uh, when, they, when they had this experience of sanctification, they were so excited, but, but then some people decided that wasn't holy enough either. Oh, you've been sanctified, but you still are stumbling in sin because you haven't actually received the Holy Ghost. And so if you get saved and the Spirit sanctifies you, now again, you need another crisis to get filled with the Spirit with speaking in tongues, then you know then you know you're right with God. Then you know, okay, now since I've been filled with the Holy Ghost, I know that I'm right with God. Thus the phrase, saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. That means I, now I can finally say, I'm good and better than you, right? Like, and now I can say, if we're looking for who's really a Christian, I qualify because I am saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. It's like your little diploma, your Christian diploma. It makes me feel good about myself and makes me be self-righteous. I can now say that I am able to judge the people around me. And Jesus said to the Pharisees way back in Luke chapter 12 that we studied, the moment you think you're in a place to judge, you have fallen. That is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Am I doing okay here, Mike? Are we good? Okay, is this, this, are y'all tracking with me? All right, okay. So never before in the history of Christianity, before the revivalist movement, have there ever been doctrines like this. We, this, is something, this is something us as Pentecostals invented. Right? We, 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 we destabilized people's relationship with God so that they can prove to us that they're saved. 
It's no longer a private matter between you and God. Like, if you were really saved, you would have had the experience of sanctification and we would have witnessed it. Oh, you were sanctified. You say you're sanctified. Yeah, but do you speak in tongues? Because then we would know that you were baptized in the Spirit. And if you were filled with the Spirit, then we would, we would know whether you were right with God. As if us knowing matters. As if God cares what we think about your salvation. Are you following me here? Get saved. Get sanctified. Get filled. Do, do all that stuff. But it's between you and God eventually. You can fake it every Sunday morning and still not make it. Right? Are you with me? All right. And so out of, the, out of, these, uh, out of, out of this saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, like I said, people started getting baptized in the Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues. This happened late 1800s. It began to happen. Um, it, it started... Um, in Ohio with a man who had a Bible college and then a guy named Parham who was a wicked racist, uh, learned it, started his own school, uh, which a man named William Seymour went there for a couple weeks and then was called out to California. And he began teaching the baptism of the Spirit with praying in tongues. And people were like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. And as a matter of fact, he, they called him out the pastor of the church. He taught the first Sunday on the baptism of the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And the next Sunday he came back and they had padlocked the church. Like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Like, no, no thank you, right? And so a couple, you know the story, who lived on Bonnie Bray Street, let him start a meeting there. So many people came. People started getting filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues. And they moved it to a little barn on Azusa Street where the Azusa Street Revival began to pop off about the same time revival was happening in India, about the same time uh, revival was happening in northern Europe. God was moving on the planet about the same time. But mostly out of Azusa, we say the Pentecostal movement happened. And you're like, what's the Pentecostal movement? If you've sung a Hillsong song, you have been part of the Pentecostal movement. If you've ever sang a song by Bethel, you have been a part of the Pentecostal movement. That's what all these movements trace. Almost all the worship that's anything today comes out of the Pentecostal movement. The Toronto Revival comes out of the Pentecostal movement. And at this time, I need you to hear this. Here's the point of this entire story. They were convinced that this whole baptism in the Spirit and speaking in tongues was so that you could be so sanctified that you would never sin again. And God is like, well, as long as you're praying, I don't care what you think it's for. As long as you're ministering, I don't, I don't care what you think it's for. Because my goal is to get the Holy Ghost on some people so they can pray in an unknown language and they can be empowered to minister in a way you cannot minister on your own. So people will see, watch this, that it's not what you and I can achieve, but what God can achieve through us. That was the point of the whole movement. The whole movement was it is not about you. The whole movement is that when God comes on your life, he will do something that you could not do on your own. And they wanted to convince people that you could get holy enough to get God. And God was like, you pray that all you want, right? Like, like, but I'm the only one who can make you holy. It's only when the Holy One touches you that you can become holy. You can dance around all you want. That, that, was, that, was, that was the sin of um, the prophets of Baal. We can make ourselves worthy of a visitation of God. And Elijah's like, it's never going to work. It's not going to work. Only God can make you holy. So he just let all these people in the 1800s cry out to God and pray and fast and tarry. And then he sent the Spirit. And they're like, yes, yes, now we made it. Now we made it. Listen to this point. Now we made it. And God is like, you don't even know what you have received, let alone have you graduated. 
God will use your unredeemed desires to get you to where God can use you. Let me say this again. God will use your unredeemed desires to get you where God can use you. This is what I was talking about at the beginning. You make some decisions, you have no idea why you made them, and they just change the whole trajectory of your life. And you're like, God, what, what happened if I went to a different college? What, what would have happened had I not gone out to dinner with that group of friends and, and I first connected with Tracy? Like, what, what would have happened had I not joined? Like, what? Like, I thought you were calling me to pray for this, and then something entirely different happened. What would have happened? And, 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 and the key, if you take anything out of this, the key to the God life is the trust that God is walking with you in ways you do not see. The key to the God life is the trust that God is walking with you in ways you do not see. He's moving in your life right now and you don't understand it. And that's exactly how he wants it. He wants you to walk with trust. We think the encounter with God is the end when it's normally the beginning. We don't graduate into, you don't like, and this is how, this is how I was as a single. You graduate into marriage. Like you come to some place of maturity and then you get married and now the journey just began. Like the trial has just begun. You have just prayed yourself into a lifelong trial. Congratulations. Right? But you think you're praying for one thing. I'm going to be complete now. No, now, now you're going to be joined to someone else who has a, a complete, complete different lack of completeness. And they're expecting you to fulfill it. You're like, no, no, no. You were here to complete me. What, what, what do you, what, wait, what, what, God, what happened? I prayed all the prayers. I did the list of what I want in a spouse. I had a vision board. Did you not get the vision, God? I cast it. Did you not get it? God's like, yeah, that's all cute. That's all really, really cute. I'm glad. If that, if that gets you to pray, go ahead and pray, right? Like just, if you need a vision board to pray, make a vision board and pray. Yeah, like if you need a list, go ahead and make a list and pray. Do what you need to do to pray. Just pray though. But my will is ultimately going to be done, right? See, this is God. Because the encounter with God is, is, is just, it's just the beginning. And so Jesus in the synagogue heals this woman of her back and they think now we can judge him. And he's like, you don't understand that I just changed the whole point of your gathering. Your gathering is not to come together to see who's the most righteous. Your gathering is to love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. I don't care what your law says. We skip forward to Luke 13, verse 18. Jesus asked the people, sweet Jesus. Don't you love when God asks you questions? And for a moment, you think he cares what your answer is. What is it to... King <laughs> then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? And he, he didn't even pause. He's like, you don't know the answer. Let me give it to you. He's like, these are the questions you should be asking. So here's the answer. He said, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched on, in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked its way all through the dough. Wow, what, is, what? What does that mean? What? It's the kingdom of heaven is like a pinch of yeast? And here, here, here's, what, here's what God is trying to, he's trying to tell us. The simple lessons of Jesus are the most profound. 
we're looking for the big revelation. We're looking for the great breakthrough. We're looking for the big come up. And Jesus is like, love God, love your neighbor. Work that out, then come ask for more. <laughs> Figure that out. We, we, we keep looking for a massive tree that God is going to give us, and he's given us a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed imaginable. We, 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 want the, we want the bread, and he's like, I'll give you this pinch of leaven, this little bit of yeast, but if you put it with the flour, if you put it in the dough, and you give it a little bit of time, it's going to take over. If you truly get Jesus to speak into your life, and you stay faithful to that thing, it's eventually going to take over, and you'll get the tree. You'll get the bread. Jesus here in his bread, he's talking about, listen, my, my kingdom is the leaven, and if you will get it inside of you, you will have the bread of life that will serve the whole world what they actually need to be filled by. You understand this? But it takes 11. It takes people of God. It's, a, it's the smallest voice of conviction. It's the small steps towards God. It's the random acts of charity that will cause the greatest shifts in your life. It's the constant faithfulness to God. We're waiting for the famous moment. We're waiting for lottery Jesus. We're, we're waiting for magic Jesus. We're waiting for Wizard of Oz Jesus. And Jesus is like, I've come as a baby. It took me 30 years to come into my call. How quickly did you think you were going to come into yours? 30 years of faithfulness for the son of Mary, who was, watch this, eternally the son of Mary from time past. If you can comprehend that. It took eternity and then 30 years to come into his calling. Right? Breakthrough in our world came like a baby. And this thinking of lottery Jesus has polluted our faith. That if we just endure what we don't like long enough, he'll give us what we want. And he really wants to transform us slowly into the image of Christ. The woman was crippled for 18 years and she served week after week after week after week. How much disappointment did she deal with? How much discouragement did she deal with? 18 years of serving in the synagogue. Here's what I find interesting. 18 years before that moment, Jesus was getting his bar mitzvah. We read about it in scriptures. At this age, he had been a Jewish adult for 18 years. At this point, she was crippled. He became a man. And in God's timing... At the very moment, that synagogue got to see the true calling of God. These things collide. Jesus has a timeline in your life. And if you cooperate with him, the plan of God will collide with the moment of your destiny that will give you the freedom that you've actually been crying for. The visitation and the presence that will complete who you are and bring you out of your bondage. Bring you in to stand up straight and know that your God is with you. That He is serving and ministering and empowered you to stand up right in this world where others have judged you. See, Jesus was talking bigger than they knew. He was talking about something bigger than the Pharisees could really understand. Let me get the band to come up if you would, please. He was talking about something bigger than they could even realize, and he's letting them know people are more important.
than the ways that you judge people. For her, it was a suddenly, but it took 18 years. For Jesus, it was a suddenly, but it took 30. Jesus in that time was faithful to his family. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to his duty as a follower of God. What's Jesus trying to say here? I got three very quick points, then we'll go. Number one, what do we do with this? What do we do with all this? It's not, I don't want to destabilize you. I want you to say, okay, what does it look like to be a Christ follower? How do I, how do I, how do I get out of the bondage of thinking that my whole life is about me getting what I need in this life? I promise you, in the end, we're all going to live eternally in God's glory. So, but what, what about right here now? Three quick things. Number one, look for the people God cares about. Hear me when I say this. Look for them. Don't just wait for them to stumble into your path. If you want to know where Jesus is right now, if, you, if you're like, I don't know where God is. I don't know how to find him. I don't know his direction. Look for the people he cares about because there he is. God cares about the sheep. He cares about the poor. He cares about the hurting. He cares about the disenfranchised. He cares about the broken. He cares about the people you don't like. That's where he is. I haven't told this story in years, but I remember when I first got saved and I got baptized in the Holy Ghost and I was living in a God bubble. I was like, I was a walking revival, right? Like just everywhere I was, was a revival meeting. I would wake up hearing his voice, speak to him, witnessed everywhere. And uh, one day I woke up and I didn't sense his presence and it freaked me out because I lived a life of sin, like just deep deep sin and I was in my mid-twenties and I got converted and I was living with God and I didn't want that to change and I woke up and I didn't sense his presence and I freaked out and I was like and I was in college at the time I'd been in the military and I was in college and didn't have a car at the time because my car was illegal and I decided driving an illegal car probably wasn't glorifying God right I was new in Christ give me some grace right so I was now riding a bike this was God humbling me I had a Owned a car since I was 15. Now I'm in my mid-20s riding a bike, right? And so I get my backpack, and I get on my bike, and I ride down to the courthouse. And I figured, people going to court will take some prayer, right? And if I pray for people to receive Christ, Holy Spirit has to show up. It's impossible to share the gospel and the Holy Ghost not show up. And I don't sense the Holy Ghost, and I want to know where He is. So I'm going to go to some people who will receive him so I can just kind of selfishly leech off of God ministering to them so I can get some God presence. And so I just go down to the courthouse and I just ask every single person, hey, I'm just praying for people to go to court. Are you going to court? I'd love to pray with you. And you'd be surprised how many people who are about to go to jail will take prayer. 
They are more than happy to receive anybody praying for anything. They don't care if you're Buddhist, Christian, the Dalai Lama. They don't care. They just say, yes, any God that you might know, I will take it because I do not want to go to jail. And so I just spent my morning there just witnessing in the cloud of glory. And I just went home so proud of myself because I figured out where God was. Completely missed that God was telling me, listen, this is where you will find me all the time. This is where I want you to find me ministering to people with needs. I completely missed the point of the, the, the whole encounter. And so I go back to my house happy that I now have the presence of God again. Look for people God cares about. Number two, God is more interested in how you love than how you act. I mean, don't act a fool, all right? Don't act a fool. But love well. If you're looking for a new prayer direction in this season, Lord, teach me how to love well. What does it look like to love well? We're seeing on social media pastors behaving very poorly, not loving well. We're seeing leaders like in their brokenness and in their immaturity splitting churches, not loving well. Weird nationalism. Weird, weird, weird. Unchristian Christian nationalism. Weird. It's glorification of violence, church. Learn how to love well. And number three, if you get this in your spirit, it would greatly please me and I believe the spirit. Small acts of kindness will change the world. Small acts of kindness will change the world. I don't have time to teach on this, but in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about spiritual warfare and he talks about principalities and powers and rulers and he's giving us this strata this pyramid of the demonic realm and then he tells us put on the armor and so in our Christian Pentecostal pride we think we're supposed to go battle with powers because you know I'm great so I'm clearly only supposed to deal with the great powers right when, when, when Paul is really saying, listen, the one that you're equipped to fight are the ones right here on the ground. The one in front of you. And if you watch these videos, you're a guy like me, and you see these videos when people knock over the silos. You ever see these? And like these guys have like a tractor, like just a do-it-yourself silo knocker-downer. And they don't start from the top like a professional would, you know, and dismantle it. They knock out the base and wait for it to fall over. And Paul's literally saying, hey, these things way up there, he's high. That's, that's not your concern. If you can deal with the sin in front of you, if you can deal with the way the enemy is working in front of you, 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 you knock the legs out of that thing. And then the powers fall. They're not built on anything. So what does that mean? It means like loving the unlovable. That, 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 yeah, amen. That, that, yeah, that means like Jesus, like, yeah, go get the person who's hurting and causing division and love them. Like, you don't need to behave like this. I understand you're hurt, but there's a power at work here and, we'll, and we can knock it down if I can behave well today. It's like when, when you hear like, you ever been with someone and they tell a joke that's racist or sexist and you cringe? You ever been like that? And like, like, ugh. Like, what do I do? Here's what you do. You say, I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? 
I don't, oh, it's, it's just a joke. Can you explain it? Uh, conviction. You don't just stand there and let people be racist, and you don't have to be mean in return. You don't have to sin against them because they're sinning against God. You say, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it. Can you explain it? Yeah, oh, okay. I'm knocking the legs out of this power, this principality of sexism and racism. Does this make sense? Speaking with a friend of mine who's, uh, <clears throat> God has sent him to a city to start a, uh, a church. And he has a really good job. And he knew the job was coming to an end and then he would probably start the church. He's like, they just gave me a promotion. You know, I thought this, the job would end and then I'd start the church, but now I'm getting a promotion. And I said, maybe God wants you to decide to start the church and not your boss. Maybe God wants you to decide to be righteous and he's not going to change things around you. Maybe you're going to make small steps this week into your call. Making steps of righteousness, having the uncomfortable conversation of love, reaching out across the aisle, Maybe someone's going to gossip about you and you're not going to gossip about them. Maybe, maybe, maybe your, your spouse is going to lose their mind and you're not going to go there again. You're going to wait till the storm blows over and then come back and have a conversation. Maybe you are going to make these small acts of love, like heal a woman on the Sabbath that changes the rule of engagement. It knocks down the power of the enemy. We'll move out of this dualism and we will live our lives serving Jesus. Can you stand with me? Amen. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Amen. Amen. And so I want us to sing this really quickly. Come on. Start strumming away here. We're going to sing this and I want us to just recommit ourselves. This hallelujah. This hallelujah. Says I just give praise to God. Surrender to Jesus again.
will allow, you will, oh, in the name of Jesus, Father, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit afresh that we would walk with you, Lord, that we would, that we would journey with you, that we would be led like you were led by the spirit, that you laid down your will for the fathers, that we would do the same, not projecting onto you what we think should happen, but we will be fully surrendered, that we could glorify the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's in that precious name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Give a clap offering to the Lord. Thank you very much. God bless you. Pull back.